This episode contains strong themes that some listeners may find distressing. The historical events in this show touch on the subjects of chronic illness, death, suicide, homophobia, sexual acts, drug use, and some explicit language. The 1980s were important and trying times for Aotearoa. Many look back to this time for the fashion and the music, but it was also a period of bold protest and activism, political reform, economic disasters, and more. You may have learned about some of these events in school. The Springboks Tour, the Rainbow Warrior, Māori Language Act of 1987, all important parts of our history that people should know and reflect on. In this series, you'll learn something that isn't taught in schools, but it should be. A story that should sit alongside all of our most famous events in history, involving a group of brave people that Aotearoa should be immensely proud of. Perhaps it's a testament to how well they did that most don't know their names, but it's time to change that. This is Our Forgotten Epidemic, a six-part story about Aotearoa New Zealand's response to HIV and AIDS, and some of the many brave individuals who changed the course of history. I'm your host, Dr Jason Myers, and I've been honoured to have been a part of the HIV response in Aotearoa for nearly two decades. This is part four, how we lost so many. Picture this, it's 1989. You've recently returned from your big OE and you're still adjusting to life back in New Zealand. The last few weeks have been packed with family and friends eager to catch up with you and hear about your adventures. But today, For the first time since returning, you've managed to avoid booking in any social obligations. To be honest, if anyone were to ask about your plans for the day, you would have lied, but thankfully, no one has. Outside, the Pahutakawas have started blooming, the rain has finally stopped, and summer feels as if it's arrived. You want to be at the beach or tramping in the bush, but instead, here you are, alone, in a sterile doctor's waiting room sitting on a ripped, padded brown chair. There are only a few other people scattered around, and they mostly look as frightened as you feel. Someone shoots you a smile, friendly for a second, then you smile back, but then you remember where you are, why you're there, and you quickly look away. You've been waiting two weeks for this moment, and that in itself tells you what you don't want to know. The doctor comes out and calls your name, and as you stand up, you search their face for any hint of what they might be about to tell you. You walk inside, and the doctor asks you to close the door. He said, um, I had at least six months left to live. When I was diagnosed, I was told I had about three years to live, because I'd already had it for two years by the time. You've probably got about two years to live. You should go home to New Zealand and get ready to die. I thought I'd have to, like so many people in those days, sort your life out to start to deal with issues. My partner was also, we'd been together two years, so he got it from me as well. Nobody was talking about treatments or anything like that. It was just like, get ready to watch your health disappear and and die. You 
You have just heard the voices of three people who were given the news of an HIV positive test result at a time when there was no treatment. Their names are Bruce Kilmister, Jane Bronning and Michael Stevens. We'll come back to their stories soon, but before we do, let's talk about the time they were living in. By the mid-80s, although often flawed and incomplete, knowledge of HIV and AIDS had entered the public consciousness. Safer sex practices and prevention messaging were being promoted by advocacy groups, medical organisations and the government. But an HIV diagnosis was still considered by many to be a death sentence. There was no treatment in those years and no matter how safe you might be, there was always a risk, one tiny slip up, a bit of bad luck. A contaminated blood bank or the indiscretion of a lover was enough to fundamentally change your life. In previous episodes, we've covered the early years of HIV and AIDS, when it was still yet to properly reach us here in Aotearoa. The organisations and groups that sprung up were mostly focused on prevention, preparation and raising awareness. Alongside those you've already learned about, new support groups were springing up, like the Te Toko, the Māori Support Network, Positive Women Inc, and Body Positive, to name a few. Although there were some growing pains and early clashes, for the most part these groups worked together to provide essential services for those in Aotearoa who needed them. And in those days, there were plenty who needed them. You might remember Bruce Kilmister from our previous discussions of homosexual law reform. Bruce was one of the founding board members of the New Zealand AIDS Foundation, and also a big part of the history of Body Positive, which you'll learn more about later in this episode. Now, I should clarify something here. You'll be hearing about three Bruces throughout this story. By this point, the beloved Bruce Burnett had already passed away. You'll meet Bruce Richmond in a later episode. Bruce Kilmister, as well as being a founding board member of the NZAF, was also the owner of a successful business in the fashion industry in the 80s, which would often take him between Australia and New Zealand. It was through these connections that Bruce first started to hear about people he knew getting sick. Most gay men used to travel to Sydney or Melbourne for Mardi Gras, or there were two big parties in Sydney, Mardi Gras of course in March, and then the Sleazeball, it was called in later in the year, October, November. And again, we had a number of friends, uh, most people, knew people across there, etc. And we then started to hear of people having to go to usually St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney. The reports coming through were all ugly, all horrible, because there was at that time in the early days absolutely no cure. A diagnosis was a death sentence. Bruce had a personal policy in place to get checked for HIV every six months. As he had done previously, he went to Holdsworth House in Sydney for another test, with an arrangement to receive the results the next time he was there. When he returned, however, it turned out they had lost the results, and so he had to do the test again and wait another three weeks. Needless to say, I had some mixed emotion because there was still some element of expectation, I suppose, or or anxiety. Anxiety probably describes it better about going in and getting the test result. I'd had it many times before, it was always negative, but then suddenly it, when he said it's positive, 
sort of knocked me off my pedestal <laughs> for a bit. And of course, in those days, as I say, there was nothing, uh, no treatment. And the physician said to me, he was very nice about it, but he said I had at least six months left to live, <laughs> at least. But nevertheless, um, I thought I'd have to, like so many people in those days, sort your life out to start to deal with issues. The year was 1986. Bruce was only 34 years old. I remember the whole morning I just wanted to struggle, but I had appointments and work to do, so I somehow managed to get through that. It's quite an amazing experience. Um, yes, but, you know, I'd been with close friends who'd received the positive diagnosis as well. It was always pretty bad news, as I say in the early days, because it was a tantamount to a death sentence. As individuals, we're often much harder on ourselves than we would ever be on others. Bruce probably would have been the first to reassure someone that their predicament wasn't their fault, but when it came to his own diagnosis, he couldn't help but blame himself. There was plenty of counselling and that sort of thing, but my position back in those days was one that I, I, I thought for me I should have known better, and I became quite depressed about the whole transmission of it. Perhaps one of the only silver linings of this dark time for Bruce was his close relationship with the pre-existing support networks. A founding member of NZAF, Bruce had spent the two years prior to his diagnosis building the systems to care for people in the exact same position he now found himself in. In the early 80s, in response to the emergence of HIV, Body Positive was set up by people with HIV and AIDS to provide peer support and care, as well as educational resources. Bruce found it so personally helpful with his own journey that after becoming a member, he soon joined the board. When I became HIV positive myself, the first thing I really wanted to do was to talk to another person living with HIV. So I sought out the volunteers and then they had established their own organisation called Body Positive. Uh, so I joined Body Positive as a member. Body Positive was established to, uh, it was really the volunteer group of the AIDS Foundation, which then formulated themselves into Body Positive to be able to support people living with HIV and AIDS. And in those days, it was all about grief counselling and supporting people in their final days. We'll come back to Body Positive soon. First, I want to introduce you to Michael Stevens. Michael was an old friend of Bruce Burnett's and ended up moving into his old flat in 82, after Bruce moved to San Francisco. You'll remember from the first episode that it was only in June of 1981 that the first signs of HIV and AIDS were discovered in America. When Bruce Burnett arrived there, he probably hadn't heard much about any of this, if at all. But Michael, who moved there only two years later in 1984, arrived to a completely different world. I remember then that people weren't really talking about AIDS. I think people were too afraid. So the bathhouses that all closed down in San Francisco had been one thing. People I was flatting with, I remember, 
So they were, one of them in particular had lost a huge number of friends already. I found people just weren't really talking much about it, but there seemed to be a real air of fear around the, the gay scene about things. Michael decided to leave the States and continue on his travels. He eventually ended up in Turkey, where he flattered with an English teacher called Chris. It wasn't long, however, before this new illness caught up with them. It affected Chris, Michael's flatmate, first. And he kept getting sick with little things going wrong, and he ended up in hospital with TB at one point. And so he decided to go back to England, where he was from, and get a test done. And um, that came back positive. Hearing this news, Michael decided to go and get a test himself, but it turned out that it wouldn't be that straightforward. He had to travel to London, where, because he wasn't a British citizen, the NHS clinic couldn't test him. But the doctor there listened to my story and she said, I think you should assume you're positive. You've probably got about two years to live. You should go home to New Zealand and get ready to die. So that's what she told me in 1988. I went to a private clinic and paid quite a lot of money for a test and went back eventually and got the results for that and they were positive. I'd already been told, you know, a few weeks before I was to get ready to die and then to have another doctor say, actually, you see, we do have HIV and because there was no hope of a cure then, this is 1988, nobody was talking about treatments or anything like that. It was just like, get ready to, you know, to watch your health disappear and, and die. And I was, that shocked me. I went back to Istanbul and I, I thought about what I would do. Michael was only 27 years old. I came back to New Zealand the next year for about two months, maybe a bit longer, and I was trying to decide what to do. And I told my oldest brother, and he was like, there was nothing actually wrong with me physically. I didn't have any AIDS illnesses, and I wanted to go back to Turkey. My oldest brother said, look, you know, so long as you have enough money for an EFI at home if you need it, and you don't tell your parents what's happened, he said, go and live your life. And that was what I did. Faced with this situation, Michael decided to take his brother's advice and went back to Istanbul, where he spent a relatively normal, healthy four years. But it was when a friend from back home came to visit that Michael's normal life began to fall apart. My friend Glenn, he was a psych nurse. He'd been like my big gay brother when I was a teenager. He'd sort of, um, there was never anything sexual between us, just a really close brotherly friendship. He came to visit me a couple of times. And the last time he came to see me, he was really, really sick and like, really, really thin and had uh, terrible mouth infections and all sorts of other things. And then um, he died back here in New Zealand. And that made me really think that I'd probably been positive, you know, two or three years less than him. So maybe I should now go back to New Zealand and access the health system here. Back in New Zealand, Michael's health quickly deteriorated. Um, so I came back here in late October 93, and then my health started to get progressively worse and worse. So first of all, I got tuberculosis, and uh, initially they put me in full barrier nursing. So everybody who sees you in gowns and gloves, and you're in an air pressure room, and then they realized I wasn't contagious, and I was like, you can go home, but you should take this pill for 18 months. And then I started to develop other, what they used to call AIDS-related conditions. So I had something called TCP, pneumocystis coronial pneumonia. That was the first, that was the second thing that got me into hospital. I could, just, just couldn't breathe, just doing really simple things like trying to go upstairs or walk. 
While Michael was in hospital for tuberculosis, he was given a brochure for Body Positive. But when Michael first joined Body Positive, things were pretty grim. The reality was that it was a peer-to-peer support group run by and for people with a terminal illness, one that often came with a very short life expectancy. The first support group I went to at Body Positive, one of the facilitators died in the third week. So it was like, you got this message of, here's a group to support people with AIDS because you're all going to die. And look, one of the people leaving the groups just died. It's like, oh shit. Even with such a harrowing introduction, Michael saw immense value in what Body Positive was offering. Here was a setting where you could trust that everyone around you also knew exactly what you were going through, which can be so important when processing any kind of trauma. And just like Bruce Kilmister, Michael ended up not just using the services they provided, but volunteering in his own dwindling time. To the mostly young, mostly gay men who had often already had to deal with such adversity and trauma in their short lives, the world of illness they had been plunged into just seemed so unfair. And so of course it was valuable to be able to meet and share with people who had lived experience of the same reality even if the chances were high that they would lose these new relationships too. I met some good people there. Quite a few of them died. Um, few are still alive, which is nice. It's, it was such a different time because it was a time of crisis. But I guess it's the quite closest thing to it's like being in a war. And once the war's over, it's sort of hard to remember just how bad it was. Yeah. But it was really bad. It really was... Uh, I think a lot of us were very angry and very angry and unhappy because it just, you know, so many of us were in our 20s or 30s and and thinking this should not be happening to us. It really did feel like your body had betrayed you, yeah. And then I sort of spent time bouncing between hospital and Burn Bay House, which was a respite centre and hospice for people with AIDS. Hearn Bay House was a residential home which was managed by the Auckland City Mission as a palliative and respite care facility for people living with HIV and AIDS. Similar to Body Positive, it was a place of both unwavering support and unbearable tragedy. It was really scary, yeah. It just seemed like so many people, so many people that I knew had died when I became much more aware of things. And then on a regular basis, people would die every week, every month. Somebody would die. And I think people don't, people don't understand the effect of that much death. Your 20s and 30s should be a time of exploration and freedom when you learn about yourself and the world around you. It should be a time of growth when you start to become the person you want to be, when you meet people that will be in your life for years to come, and when you really start to plan your future. Instead... Many people, who should have had more than half their lives ahead of them, were being given a terminal diagnosis of a couple of years, if they were lucky, but often merely months, weeks, or sometimes just days. Jane Brunning was still a teenager when she left New Zealand on her big OE. 19, I went to Europe, went to London and worked there for a while. Got a job working on a tour company. After spending three years working all over Europe, she went to her boss looking for a new challenge. And they they said, oh, we've got a place in Tanzania. It's a cook on safaris. 
And I said, yeah, I'd love that. Where, where is it? I'd never even heard of it. And so I ended up going to Tanzania, which was just the most amazing experience of my life. Jane quickly fell in love with Tanzania and stayed for 12 years, during which time her son was born. Like many young people, she'd had a few relationships over this decade before settling down with a long-term partner. Then one day, she unexpectedly bumped into an old boyfriend. I hadn't seen Joseph for a while. When I saw him, he was like really, really skinny. And I thought, oh, it just crossed my mind. I said, oh God, I wonder if he's got AIDS. And I went and had a test. And I rang up about three times for the results and they kept putting me off. And in the end, I just didn't bother. And I think part of me didn't bother because I thought maybe it's positive. I also thought maybe because I, I had this feeling that maybe the doctor was too afraid to tell me as a white person, because it's definitely white privilege and all the rest of it. And uh, he just was very avoidant. And I mean, I don't know why he couldn't tell me, and he didn't. And, and then I just didn't bother. Jane put it to the back of her mind until she found out some upsetting news. Her ex-boyfriend, Joseph, had died. And had died of typhoid and salmonella and AIDS. So I went and got checked which was pretty yucky. That was in, in 1990. And, and in Africa, it was still pretty much like, not talked about, it wasn't even really, you could see it, but nobody really talked about it. But anyway, so I got a test and I was diagnosed positive and my partner, we'd been together two years, so he got it from me as well. So there's no medications, especially when we lived in Tanzania, there was no support, nobody talked about it. And my boyfriend, at the time, you know, we don't talk about it, don't tell anybody about it. And, and was, that was easy enough not to because it was too scary and too, too stigmatising. And... Soon after this diagnosis, her partner's job in Africa finished and they moved back to England. When she sought out treatment, she was told that she would have three years left to live. The year was 1990. Jane, a mother to a young child, was only 34 years old. I went to England, linked into support networks and linked into counselling, linked in with the AIDS network there and, and that really helped me. My partner was in total denial, I just carried on like he didn't have anything, which was probably okay. It was his way of dealing with it. Anyway, our relationship didn't survive and when I was diagnosed I was told I had about three years to live because I'd already had it for two years by the time. And so my son was around 10 at that point and the relationship was shit and I was on my own in England, so I decided to come back to New Zealand. Jane returned to Aotearoa, where she knew she had a supportive family waiting and that they at least would be able to care for her son when her time came. And at that time really came back to, I think, think it was dying because there was nothing how much, what do, I, what do you do, you know? But I, I guess I just kind of went day by day, day by day, and then, then it started sort of being year by year. Hearing Jane's story, you come to understand that it's not just the terror of death and the thought of leaving your loved ones behind that's so difficult with a terminal diagnosis. It's also the limbo that people find themselves stuck in when you believe you're going to die in a matter of years, if not sooner. Every decision you make must carry such incredible weight. At a loss, Jane too turned to the available support networks. 
As well as the New Zealand AIDS Foundation, Jane also began using the counselling services of both Body Positive alongside another much newer support group. Although initially being seen to affect only men who had sex with men, by the end of the 80s more women were being diagnosed. Susie Morrison and Judith Aykroyd, two social workers who worked with Auckland Hospital, noticed this and recognised the need for services that supported women, as most of the existing ones at this time had been set up for gay men. So, in 1990, they founded Positive Women, understanding that women living with HIV would face unique difficulties and would need their own safe space and support. There are some poignant similarities to all of the stories you've just heard. They all had difficulties in finding out their results. Bruce Kilmister's blood tests were lost, and he had to wait another uncertain three weeks. Michael couldn't be tested at the first clinic he went to. He had to wait until he found a private clinic who would test him. And Jane's first doctor refused to take her calls. They all were told, in the prime of their lives, that they only had a short time left to live. Jane, three years. Michael, two years. Bruce, six months and they all turned to groups that had formed around people in the same situation to support others like themselves. It was pretty ugly times back then. All my friends around me were dying, all those uh, close friends I had who were living with HIV and dying with AIDS. Some of the really bad stuff, of course, some people took their own lives, and that was really difficult to deal with as well. Um, They were very dark days. The grief and loss experienced by thousands of Kiwis and millions of people around the world in such a short time is almost unimaginable to any of us who didn't live through it. We lost a huge chunk of our generation. I think for gay men it's had a... Globally, it's had a huge effect. We've lost this whole sort of generation of fathers, if you like, that should have been there. You know, my peers. Gay culture was just developing in the late 70s and early 80s. So it was just starting to flower into something. And there were all these people who were part of all of that. And then it was like this atomic bomb went off and killed like 80% of them. And so suddenly it was just all this potential that we saw there was just gone. Um, and so it's always going to be this whole thing of what if, you know, what would what would what would the world have been like if that hadn't happened? There was a a camaraderie amongst the gay community which really came together to focus on support for each other. It was quite an amazing time in that aspect. I'm pleased it'll never ever happen again in terms of the current gay men who will never have to experience any significant issue like that. Volunteer support groups like Body Positive, Positive Women Inc., the Māori HIV Prevention Group, Te Ropu Tautoko, and the New Zealand AIDS Foundation were so important to people living with HIV. They provided camaraderie, support, and understanding to those dealing with the burden of a terminal diagnosis. Something that cannot be understated is the amount of support that came from lesbian communities. Here's Michael Stevens on his experience. 
of a lot of gay men and a lot of lesbians were very actively involved in committing time to looking after people. Uh, I think in many ways it's pretty amazing the way so many lesbians stepped up because it didn't really touch the lesbian community at all. But they made a real effort to be there with us. Just in things like cooking meals, doing a load of laundry, coming around cutting the grass, all that sort of thing. Just, just being parts of networks and helping. Doctors, who were learning more and more about HIV all the time, were also becoming increasingly involved. Dr Rod Ellis-Pegler, who by now you know quite well, was the head of Auckland Hospital's Infectious Diseases Ward, Ward 9C. This meant that he was on the front line for treating people with complications caused by AIDS. Our 9C was the Infectious Disease Ward, okay? It's a big, it was a double-sized ward. It had double the number of beds of any other ward in the hospital. Sometimes the only patients that we would have in the ward as ID patients would be people with HIV infection, especially in the 80s when our treatments were, well, treatments of HIV infection was zero and we were only trying to deal with complications and we could only sort of stave those off for certain lengths of time. It was really hard nursing, even for qualified nurses. People would try it and they'd have rosters of people and rosters within the gay community if, if that was something that, you know, if the person was overtly was out of the closet or the languages, uh, was, had, had acknowledged their gayness to the community. As a doctor, Rod was of course going to provide the medical care these patients desperately needed. But for Rod, his deep compassion for the people he was treating meant that he also had to have some extraordinarily difficult conversations. The discrimination against these communities and the shame that people felt as a result of that discrimination meant that many people felt forced into keeping their diagnosis private, even from those they were closest with. This meant that they could be left alone with just a doctor, a nurse, or a couple of volunteers as company in their last days. There was a huge gay community that rallied around all these, these people, but not everyone wanted that lots of secrets and things and, uh, about it all. Parents who didn't know and they'd come up from Hamilton, they heard that their son was in the infectious disease unit, just come back from Sydney, what's the problem? We'd have to sort it out with the guy beforehand, look, doesn't the mum and dad, they're coming up this afternoon, do they know about you, that you've got AIDS or whatever, the language all of the time? I said, well, no, they don't, do they know you're gay? No, they don't know that. Well. Mate, do you want me to tell them how we're going to do this? So there was, you know, that sort of thing was happening all the time. It was such a different world. Rod became close with many of his patients, including a young man from Waitakere who he treated frequently. During their conversations, Rod and his patient discovered they had a shared love for the theatre. One was a very young man. Uh, so sad. And he hadn't liked that first, um, but he grew to realise what I was saying for it. And he certainly knew I was on his side. I was always on their side. I'm a bit of an underdog person, really. So this was perfect underdog, wasn't it? Gay men, fatal disease. Anyway, yeah, I remember him very well. And we became friends. I told him, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber, that's right. And I really liked Andrew, and he said, oh, 
he was he used to act in plays, and he and he, he was literary players on whatever they're called, or putting on a thing, Andrew Lloyd Webber songs from operas thing. I, I forget now. But one of them was, uh, I had, I think I'd heard it once. It's called Love Love Conquers Everything. You know, you're either into these things or not, but it's a very touching song. And he said, you must go, because... Oh. This guy, sing, he'll be singing that. He said, he's an old guy. Maybe he's as old as you. But uh, he'll be singing it, and he did it. It's a fantastic song, which I had heard and which I sometimes listen to very loudly now. Tragically, like so many of Rod's patients in Ward 9C, this young man passed away. I went to his funeral. I should have spoken at it, but I didn't. I never spoke at any of them. The ones that wanted the, the, the young boy, there's no way I would have spoken or even let on who I was because his parents didn't know that he'd died of AIDS. He wanted a secret from some of these. There were, I'm not going to say often, but there were from time to time these sorts of complicating things that were going on at that, particularly at that time. They're always liable to be in this world, I'm afraid, but uh, yeah. Funerals, oh, the other one, I can remember one other. Yeah. yeah, no, I couldn't have stood that once a month. At the time, people living with AIDS faced so much stigma, even in death. Funeral directors would refuse to handle or bury them. Bodies were buried in secret and in shame because of the intense discrimination faced by the gay community. If a funeral did go ahead, often long-term partners were ignored by the family members of the deceased. You'll remember Kate Leslie from part one as a founding member of the NZAF. Kate became the first chair of the New Zealand AIDS Foundation following Bruce's death, which meant she saw a lot of loss firsthand. We had difficulties at the outset with the, with the funerals, for example. They were not owned or that the partners were not owned. Uh, was another layer of sadness that people with some very long relationships were were ignored. People thought they were saving face, I guess. But that was painful. I, I, I remember getting to the stage of, of crying, thinking, I, I, I don't think I can go to another funeral like this. Is, and sit there while the minister is so sorry for dear auntie or grandma or almost anyone else, while the partner of 20 years is sitting alongside and not getting a mention. That was the terrible sadness of that era that, you know, as I say, most of them, Bruce didn't make 30, most of them didn't make, didn't make 30. And to see such lovely people lost such creativity, such, such contribution to society, lost was Fisad. You're about to hear about the beginnings of a community-led organisation that was set up to right some of those wrongs people living with AIDS faced in death. The story of the Cartier Bereavement Trust begins with a legend who should still be around today, Courtney Cartier. Here's Karen Ritchie, who worked with the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective as well as the NZAF and was a friend of Courtney's. 
Courtney Cartier was a drag queen in Auckland, very well-known drag queen at Kaluzzi, when it was a cafe. I had an apartment in Cairo, and I used to go to that place when it was a cafe, you know, for my coffee and stuff. If you're from Tamaki Makoto, Auckland, chances are you've either been to or at least heard of Kalangahapi Road's Kaluzzi, the longest-running cabaret in Aotearoa's history. The Kaluzzi we now know and love started in 1996 when two of the cafe's staff members, Courtney Cartier and Felicia Pourgette, were asked by the regulars if they would put on a show for them. Courtney and, and, and Felicia used to work in the kitchen. They'd both done it all in Aussie anyway. They'd done drag before. They thought to the owner, can we sort of do drag here? Yes, absolutely. So they had a go at it and it went off like a bomb. So then it turned up to be a, a drag show, like the coffee machine and stuff, you know, the bar was set up. And... Karen lived on Karangahape Road and was a regular at Kaluzzi. She became friends with the performers, and in particular with Courtney. She was, um, oh my goodness, she was amazing. Courtney had a beautiful soul, beautiful soul. She was thin, thin, but she was a beautiful soul. Straight men would be around her like bees to a honeypot, you know, just wanting to hear more about her, wanting to talk with her because that's, you know, she'd be outside of Kaluzzi, you know, in the break time and that, and I used to crack up laughing. And um, so, yeah, she was, she was a, a life of a party, put it that way. She was a life of a party. Courtney also happened to be living with HIV. And Karen's close friendship with Courtney meant that when she became unwell, Karen had the privilege of supporting her through her illness. I was with her at Auckland Hospital when her doctor told her that there's no more they can do for her with the drugs. I went with her on many meetings there with her doctor. Because things were not getting looking good for her, you know. And then when that time for her in general came about, she was sent to hospital down to Hearn Bay House for palliative care and it was a beautiful place in those days and it was really it was a nice a good place. It was lovely. So I spent probably I think nearly every day, four weeks sleeping on the thing with her. And I'd go home and shower and go to work for a while and come back. It was during this time, perhaps, that Courtney made peace with her situation. Knowing that she didn't have much time left, she arranged a final gathering with the people she loved. She wanted a few of us to meet with her on this particular night so she could tell everybody else that she only had weeks to live. And she sort of picked her pallbearers. She decided she wanted the muscle memory pallbearers. <laughs> you know, she had quite a bit of say around this too. <laughs> and I remember I promised her, I promised her that I would meet all her wishes through that journey. She wanted her coffin to look like a float down down Ponsonby Road. So we had her coffin in the garage at Hearn Bay House. And this was a Friday night or something. Anyway, they were dressing it. A lot of the queens were dressing the coffin, you know, like, like a bloody float thingy and and I get to her in my house this night and she said she said Karen they haven't finished they haven't finished my coffin and I want to see it I said really they haven't finished it I thought they're going to do it finish it that day so I drove up there and they were said will you please go back and finish that girl's coffin she wants to die but she wants to see it before she dies <laughs> they said oh shit yes okay and they'd had a few drinks you know <laughs> back we go to her in my house in the garage finishing the coffin off Take her out in the wheelchair and have a look at that. She said, fabulous. <laughs> 24 hours after seeing her decorated coffin, Courtney Cartier died. She was 32 years old. 
Karen had made a few promises to Courtney in her final weeks, and she was determined to keep them and properly honour the memory of her friend. The first thing she did following Courtney's death was to help arrange the funeral she had asked for. So when she died, she had an amazing farewell at St Matthew's Church. St Matthew's in the city is one of the four main memorials in Aotearoa for those who have passed away from AIDS. It's the home place of the AIDS New Zealand Book of Remembrance, a record of names of those lost. There were so many drag shows and there were helium balloons going out in the street and cars couldn't believe what they were seeing in the middle of the day, you know. Um, then we went back to K Road and a couple of bars were at and we just didn't, you know, people just walked down the middle of the road the night, the whole crowd just went from one bar to another. We went from Staircase and then they were just singing all the way down, we're not up in the traffic and, you know, it was like a celebration of, of her life, which as it should be. This celebration got Karen thinking. What if she could somehow help celebrate the lives of all those others who were being taken too soon, while ensuring they were laid to rest with dignity and care? Having known so many people throughout her life who had been affected by HIV and AIDS, and also seeing how many of these people died with limited financial resources, Karen wanted to ensure that everyone was given the send-off they deserved. So she founded the Cartier Bereavement Trust in 2002, the year following Courtney's death did consult with the community, because there was no real Facebook thingy then. I consulted with the community and said, you know, would you support this? I wasn't working for the New Zealand AIDS Foundation at this time, and I said to them, would you support this? And they said, absolutely, the drag queens and everyone else. So I think the very first collection we did, there was a street party around Veriford Street off K Road. I think we collected $80 in a bucket. <laughs> So that opened the bank account. <laughs> um, and then I thought, right, this is, needs, this is working. This is, you know, there's a lot of people are passionate about this. We unfortunately buried a lot of people, but fortunate that we had the funds to be able to do it. Assisted with the funerals. We didn't just go out and pay the families. I worked solely with the um, undertakers. I worked hand in hand with them. I wanted to make sure that the funeral director got paid, that they were given that dignity, that everything was there for those last moments. As part of her involvement in the community, Karen also helped grant the dying wishes of many people, including reconnecting estranged families, organising grand, beautiful and sometimes wild ceremonies, making sure partners were recognised, and ensuring that no one she knew was forced to die alone. It was there for the person that had died. So, you know, make sure they've got a coffin, make sure they've been embalmed, make sure they've been, you know, set right to spend time with families, whatever. So, yeah, and during my time over those years, I've sat with many of them dying at Auckland Hospital when they've had no family to sit with them. I have been able with some families to reconnect them, which was a dying wish of a couple I comes to my mind right now. But Karen had another final wish she'd promised to Courtney, one she was able to grant before forming the Bereavement Trust. And let me tell you, it's quite the story. I asked her what she would like me to do with her ashes. You know, before she died. Well, I used to lie in the bed with her at Hernbay House, you know, and say, okay, Queen. What do you want me to do with your ashes when it's your time, when it all happens? You know, just... She said, 
Do you think I can maybe get them somehow thrown out at the parade? Of course you can. You can have what you want. Have whatever you want. So she said, okay, just throw it out on the parade somewhere. The parade, meaning the hero parade, ran through the streets of Auckland, New Zealand in the 1990s, and it was an annual event to honour the hero in each of us. In 2001, after a decade of festivities, organisers had announced that this was to be the last year. With 200,000 attendees, or roughly 5% of New Zealand's population, it was also the biggest yet. So what I did, I had her ashes and I got all this gold glitter and I mixed it all up, put them in vials, you know, glass vials and that sort of thing. Um, I took all these vials around to all the drag queens and people and what have you, and the Kaluzzi float had a float, so they all had them at there. So on my way out there, the Herald phoned me, and they said, is that Karen Ritchie? And I said, yes. They said, oh, we've, we've been told that there's going to be somebody's ashes out on the parade. I said, really? Oh, I haven't heard that. I said, I can't imagine why. No, I haven't heard that. And so that's her resting place, Ponsonby Road. <laughs> so it's quite well known in the community that, you know, that was Courtney's resting place. But nobody actually knew for at least, a, except for the you know, local community, for a few years after that. Nothing they can do about it now, you know. She was thrown to the four winds, so to speak. Too bad if her gold glitter hit somebody. And, <laughs> <laughs> and that was her wish. So yes, darling, we'll do that. I can do that. So... You know, she's very, very happy that she went out in the very last hero parade, I'm sure. During the worst years of the crisis, people started to look for ways to memorialise the lives of those who were being taken from them. In 1983, the first International AIDS Candlelight Memorials were held in San Francisco and New York. Within a few years, the annual observances were taking place around the world. In 1987, American immunologist Dr. Bill Paul told memorial goers in San Francisco that events were happening in four cities in New Zealand and in major cities all over the world. You're about to hear from Michael Bancroft, a former Catholic priest who in the early 90s became a tireless ally for people and communities affected by HIV. He was a member of the NZAF, a founding member of Auckland Community AIDS Services, and founded the Catholic AIDS Ministry. Michael, a gay man himself who was also living with HIV, was instrumental in the creation and care of the New Zealand AIDS Memorial quilts, which were inspired by a global quilt movement started by American AIDS activist Cleve Jones. The AIDS quilts came out of America in 1985 when a person decided in San Francisco, he asked people to come to the AIDS Candlelight Memorial and bring placards with the names of the people that they had known who died on them. And they stuck them all up the side of a wall of a building. And after that, he thought, that looked like a patchwork quilt. The quilts were not only a living memorial to those who had died from AIDS-related complications, but also a way to educate communities about HIV and AIDS. Fabric panels, often measuring six foot by three foot, the size of a grave, were crafted by loved ones to honour and celebrate the lives of the individual. The American quilt was first shown on the 11th of October 1987 in Washington DC. Weighing in at 54 tonnes, 
that's heavier than an adult humpback whale, is estimated to be the largest piece of community folk art in the world. The New Zealand quilt, started in 1988, is made up of 128 panels, each representing a person or group of people who died from AIDS-related illness. The first panel presented to the project was for Peter Cuthbert, made by his partner Daniel Fielding. And the quilts started to be made all around the country. It went well for a while, but it was just local people who thought, yeah, we'll make one to remember so-and-so. And that, that was how it developed, and we had to have a committee. And there were others years before me who were involved in that committee who used to coordinate the making of them. And we had a chap who was the coordinator for a, a number of years who used to literally take them around the country and, and show people the AIDS courts and they'd have gatherings for them. So that's how it gradually developed. The court was shown in many public places across New Zealand, such as schools, universities, marais and gardens, to name a few, as well as memorialising those lost to AIDS-related complications these tours were also an opportunity to educate the public on how to keep themselves safe and to raise funds to support those living with HIV. And then it got to the stage where there were too many to take around. The material that they were made of was starting to deteriorate, so we had to decide what do we do. And that was when, fortunately, Te Papa, back in 2012, decided, yeah, we'll take them on behalf of the nation. So they're stored there and, you know, if if you ask the right questions of the right people, you can get to see them, but they're not on display. The panels are as creative, colourful and powerful as the people they represent. They capture a part of their subjects, a snapshot of their passions, hopes and dreams, and a physical pledges made to always remember these lives. Imagery was as varied as it was beautiful. There are messages to those who loved the mountains and the land and the sea of Aotearoa. Jukeboxes, guitars, Freddie Mercury, soaring birds, motorbikes, doves and rainbow flags. There are messages from partners. To Neville, my love, my best friend, my best mate, my companion. Love, Wayne. Simon loves you. Farewell. From mothers. For my son and others, I love you too. My beautiful son, forever in my heart. From fathers. There is always a place in my heart, Jeff, that is yours and yours alone. Love, Dad. From parents. Loving memories always. He came home to us when he needed love, and he knew his home was always there. Mum and Dad. Nieces and nephews to their beloved uncles. To Uncle Eddie, I miss you heaps. Love you more. Siblings. For my brother and my friend Dee, and all these boys who dared to love. And friends. We are so fortunate to have known someone like you, and we will never forget you. You will be present in our hearts forever. Mā te waiata, hei whakakotahi te iwi, 
The love, humor, and humanity we cannot forget. The friend we will never be without. There are messages to godfathers, to children, to mothers, to wives, to world travelers and nature lovers, to musicians, to all the brave people that were lost. Bruce Burnett is there, as is Evan Grafforst, Roger Wright, and many other names, no less important than those already mentioned. The impression is grief, strength, and overwhelming love. We love you. We miss you. I'll always remember you. Aroha nui. Aroha nui. Aroha nui. In 2018, the Cartier Bereavement Trust, after seeking community consultation on the future, decided to close. Over the course of 16 years, they'd helped fund the funerals of so many people who had died from AIDS-related illnesses. It was a bittersweet moment for its founder, Karen Ritchie. Bitter, because the trust was something she held very dear. However, their reason for closing was fantastic news. The advances in medicine meant that a trust to fund the funerals of people who had died of AIDS was no longer needed in Aotearoa, because the majority of people living with HIV were doing just that, living. In the timeline of this podcast, you're not quite at this moment yet. Before you hear about the triumphs, you have to pass through the 90s, a time of immense hope and crashing disappointments, a time when scientists, activists, Government representatives, people living with HIV and the media came together and refused to give up. You'll also continue to follow the stories of Jane Brunning, Michael Stevens and Bruce Kilmister as they fought for their lives in an era of extreme uncertainty. Thanks for listening to Our Forgotten Epidemic, a show about Aotearoa New Zealand's response to HIV and AIDS and some of the many brave individuals who changed the course of history. Burnett Foundation Aotearoa is proud to be able to tell part of this important story from the perspectives of some truly remarkable people. And we want to acknowledge there's so much more than we can tell in this short series. Our Forgotten Epidemic was produced by Wavelength Creative in collaboration with Burnett Foundation Aotearoa. Written and researched by Alyssa Partington, Matt Bain, and myself, Jason Myers. All music composed by Alex Cox. Many of the voices you've heard in this episode are from a series of interviews conducted by Dr. Cheryl Weir in 2019 for the New Zealand AIDS Foundation Oral History Project. Many thanks to Pride NZ for allowing us to use portions of an interview with Jane Brunning. You can listen to this interview in full, alongside many others, at pridenz.co.nz. Thanks to all the NZAF staff members who contributed their voices to the quilts section. Special thanks to our test listeners, including staff living with HIV at Burnett Foundation Aotearoa, Gareth Watkins, the Lesbian and Gay Archives of New Zealand, and pridenz.co.nz. Special thanks also goes to Peter Davis for his excellent book, Intimate Details and Vital Statistics, AIDS, Sexuality and the Social Order in New Zealand. 
To make sure you don't miss an episode of Our Forgotten Epidemic, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Dr. Jason Myers. Join me in the next episode of Our Forgotten Epidemic.